Welcome to Lawyer Up Columbus. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here with my law partner, Jack Dorora. We practice law, we seek social justice, and the two don't always match. Social justice means applying the law equally to all people. Jack, it's not just us seeking justice today. We have with us Michael Deary, Bell Reform Campaign Director at Arnold Ventures. Welcome, Micah. Thank you for having me. Uh, Jack, every day, judges across our state um, have defendants in front of them who've been arrested, and they're there in what we call arraignment. After setting a defendant's court date, which could be months into the future, these judges decide the immediate fate of that person. Should that person wait trial in jail, or can they be safely released? In order to make this decision, judges rely on their own instincts and the limited information they may have on hand. Unfortunately, many use a bail schedule. I've seen these. It's a chart that designates a specific monetary amount of bail to each crime charged. What happens is people who pose significant public safety risks are able to post bail and go on to commit other crimes, possibly. The low-level, nonviolent, and often minority people who are unlikely to commit crimes are kept behind bars. Micah, what is Arnold Ventures doing about this injustice? Certainly. And for those who are not familiar with uh, where Arnold Ventures has come from, you know, John and Laura Arnold uh, out of Houston, Texas, uh, have a background not only with philanthropy, but actually from the hedge fund world. And so for, for a family that has accumulated a, a financial status that uh, most of us will, will never be able to even imagine in our lives, it's hard to understand even how they would end up in this arena. But the fact is that the heart of the Arnolds has been that they believe in data. They believe that data can tell us what is wrong. And sometimes it can even help point to some solutions. And particularly given what has happened over the past several decades with this phenomenon of cash bail being used as a method of detention rather than as an insurance to make sure that someone appears before their court date, what we have found is that uh, there are several indicators about what someone's risk level is. And so the Arnolds began with looking at the data of what are the indicators of someone's ability to actually show up for court. And they created a risk assessment through their foundation. And that risk assessment is now in use in courtrooms all over the United States, including up in Cuyahoga County and also in Mahoney County here in Ohio. Beyond that, though, recognizing that not only can we look at what are some indicators that people will actually show up for their court date if they're out on their own recognizance, the recognition, though, that that's not enough. We have to be involved in advocacy to actually change the system and change within statute how we approach the idea of someone is innocent until proven guilty and also, at the same time, protect public safety. So from, from Arnold Ventures, our interest and in, in what we seek to do is to help mitigate what has become an unhealthy reliance on monetary bond, instead focus on making sure that the justice system is working as efficiently as possible. Yeah. Micah should be a lawyer. That was well done, wasn't it? <laughs> it <Yeah>. was. <laughs> you know, you had me at the very start when you said the Arnold's focus on data, because I see so much coming out of the state house or any legislative body where the legislation is a product of just anecdotal information and whatever the representative seems to think makes sense. So if somebody wants to say they want to rely on data, my ears perk up right now. Well, 
this is one of the most significant gaps that we have, not just in Ohio, but in the nation right now, is a severe, severe lack of good data. And in particularly, what I think comes to mind for, for a lot of folks that work within the research world is the understanding that there are not uniform data collection methods. I, and there's a great disparity in how data is kept, tracked, if at all. And this is something that uh, I've dealt with even recently in Texas, in Ohio, out in Utah, there are significant data gaps. And now, to the credit of, of both political parties, this is, a this is recognized by legislators and trying to close those gaps. But unfortunately, data typically doesn't come cheap. And so being able to find partnerships uh, between organizations like ours and the organizations that we provide grants to and to government agencies is part of the crux moving forward. And also, I know that here in Ohio, we've got some great judges, including uh, Justice Donnelly sitting on the Supreme Court, uh, that is very passionate about, about being able to find a, a uniform sentencing database uh, that can work not only in, say, Franklin or Cuyahoga County, but also in Vinton County. And, and that's part of, of the trick is being able to close the technology gaps, which the Supreme Court is offering grants to be able to help close the technology gap. We have we have opportunity here. I'm glad you mentioned Supreme Court Justice Donnelly because he was on our show some time back. And that's what he was talking about. I didn't realize, but there's no uniformity in sentencing. And so what did he want to do? He wanted data. Let's see what's going on. Let's make good decisions based on how judges are handling these things in the absence of any guidelines and go from there. Gee, what a thought, uniformity. Well, so what we're looking at then is uniformity in bail because each judge that is sitting there setting bail has the discretion to do what he or she feels best, correct? Absolutely. And, and now we have, what, 17, 18 judges in Franklin in, County alone. Oh, in Muni Court at least, sure. And uh, so the the different types of bail and arrangements that can be made must run the gambit, I imagine. Uh, Mike, uh, you said something about um, uh, innocent until proven guilty, and that resonated with me. Um, you know, it's a foundation of our criminal uh, system. And I saw a statistic, and I don't know how accurate this is in your experience, roughly 57% of inmates in Ohio jails are not there serving a sentence, but are awaiting trial. That seems to me to be the exact opposite of uh, innocent until proven guilty. You know, you're absolutely right. And, and, and it's worth stating here, you know, and, and bear in mind where preventative detention comes from, and that is the understanding that we do have to protect the public. And, and so particularly when we're talking about someone who has committed murder or a violent crime, uh, as the ACLU refers to it, people crimes, uh, we have to recognize that, and and we do have to have that in in our minds when we're determining what to do with a defendant pre pretrial. Understood. Mm -hmm. The problem is out of that 57% that you just mentioned, the majority of those, the two most common crimes that someone is accused of, is one minor drug possession, or two, driving on a suspended driver's license. Those are the two most common charges that they're facing in, in sitting behind bars. And, and, and there's a number of different ways that we can break this down. One is the sheer cost, mm. the sheer cost of, of that incarceration. Two is the, the impact. I mean, driver's suspended licenses typically are coming from uh, people who have let their insurance lapse, lapse and uh, may have had a traffic violation or, or they were caught when it came time to renew. Uh, 
typically that comes from a financial hardship in the first place. And I can tell you right now, putting someone behind bars in, in, in Ohio, if you can't pay cash bail, you're going to wait an average of 28 days, 28 days for your trial. So waiting four weeks with no income in order to deal with what was already financial hardship, all it does is it adds insult to injury and it doesn't solve the root problem. I've um, sat uh, waiting for my civil case in uh, cases where the judges were disposing of their criminal docket. And uh, it always, um, um, you know, I found it a little interesting when the judge would say, uh, I'm sentencing you to 10 days in jail, uh, you know, time served yeah. because the person had been in jail 30 days. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that doesn't seem fair. And, does the, and, it? The, and there was no credit for, there's no refund on the 20 day difference. <laughs> None at all. And, you know, Jack and I were talking about, um, boy, if you went away for 30 days, you know, what does your, um, what do your kids do? What does your employer do? Uh, you know, how do you pay your mortgage? There's got to be a lot of things that happen to the, the individual that uh, could be prevented, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and studies have shown that only three days is all it takes in many, many cases to be able to throw off a source of income, in some cases housing, and certainly, especially when we're talking about a single parent, being able to have custody of their children. Three days is all it takes, uh, which is, is part of why we're seeing an increase in court decisions. And we, we saw this uh, both with Humphrey out in California and with O'Donnell in Texas, an uh, increasing standard of making sure that those initial hearings are held within 48 to 72 hours of when the initial arrest happens to make an actual bail decision uh, and then to set the conditions of release then within the following 24 hours. And, and that is critical. I mean, particularly, and we're talking at the end of the day about constitutional rights here. We're talking about the Sixth Amendment, the right to a, to a speedy trial. We're talking about the Eighth Amendment, that excessive bail shall not be set. We're talking about the Fourteenth Amendment, that as U.S. citizens, that we shall not be deprived of our, of our liberty or property without due process. All of those come into bear here. And it's easy when all we are thinking about is, well, these are, these are criminals, so they deserve to be locked up. We're talking about American citizens at the end of the day who have not yet had an opportunity to appear before a, a jury of their peers. So when we think about the bail system, you said there really um, are there two primary reasons to make sure this person comes back on their court date and second, to protect the public because they're just a little bit too violent or uh, there's some issue that we want to make sure they're not back out on the street. Um, Jack and I, again, we're talking about, you know, how does a monetary amount solve either of those problems? Uh, I get the fact that they, I guess, forfeit their bail if they don't show up. Uh, so maybe there's some incentive. But the person that has money, is he or she more likely than the person that doesn't have money to comply? Well, and, and you, you pose a good question. And I... Uh, and, all, all evidence that we have seen that monetary bond is actually that incentive, particularly to protect public safety, is anecdotal at best. Uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago that up in uh, Stark County that uh, a man named uh, Dragan Sekulik uh, used his car as a battering ram and uh, tried to kill his ex-wife. And his would-be victim actually survived the crash. And uh, Sekulik, who had been charged with DV uh, before, faced charges of felonious assault, domestic violence, and operating a vehicle while intoxicated. And with all of those, he worked with a bail bond agent. He posted the $100,000 bond set by the court, so he put up $10,000, and he walked free to await his trial. 
And just two weeks later, still prior to the trial, free on that post of bail, Sekulik found his ex-wife, and he finished where he started, shot her in the head. The idea that that monetary bond for someone who's especially engaging in passion crimes, that idea is, is not accurate. And, and that's not to say that he's a man who should have been free. It's just that monetary bond was not the instrument that was going to keep anyone safe, let alone his ex-wife. I think that is an elected official, and our judges are elected officials, uh, worst nightmare, letting somebody out that then goes on to commit, commit a serious crime. And I, I guess to that extent, I can see how judges are going to side more with keeping people behind bars. Uh, but from the statistics I was reading and, um, you know, from your organization's um, uh, website, it just looks like it's focusing in the wrong area. It's these low-level criminal offenses that none of us would think would rise to the level of something serious like that if you let these people out. You're absolutely right. The The focus needs to be particularly on misdemeanors. Uh, and that's not to say that there are not any violent misdemeanors. Uh, but even when we're talking about violent misdemeanors, you know, and back in the day when I was a legislative aide, I was also a bouncer in a nightclub. I saw multiple fights go down that were just young college students doing dumb things, not being able to handle their alcohol. And to tell you right now that for those that who did end up going to jail, and there weren't many of them, usually the, the off-duty police officers that were there on special duty would, would work with them, talk to them, would assess there. Is this, this a real ongoing threat? Is this something where we need to deal with it? To have a young person in particular end up with, with charges and actually have to go through uh, the arraignment process and have a bail decision made, it, it's not even necessary in the first place. But even if it does need to go that far, is it really monetary bond or holding them? Because it was a it was a one time thing. There's so many different conditions of release that can be set. It doesn't have to be monetary. It can be checking in with the court on a weekly basis. It can be electronic monitoring. It can be just simply restraining orders. There are so many different things that can be used that often are overlooked as tools, and it tends to be the extreme of either OR or a high cash bail. OR being own recognizance. Own recognizance, yes. Let me take you back for a second because you said something interesting. You, you cited at least three constitutional violations with the current system. So that begs the question, how in the world did we get here? I mean, there must be some history that led us to a situation where the knee-jerk reaction is bail bond or jail. No, and, and you you are correct in assessing. Now, we know that the founding fathers saw a purpose in cash bail because the fact that we actually have in the in the Eighth Amendment saying that excessive bail shall not be said, well, they saw a role for it. And also bearing in mind, particularly the, uh, the tools that we have today for our pretrial systems in our courts simply didn't exist. And so there certainly was an opportunity for low dollar amounts to be set in order to make sure that someone appeared, whether it was a secured or unsecured bond. Didn't matter. The fact that that was there helped provide that tool. Wasn't until the late 1950s and the early 1960s that there started to be a, uh, a surgence of increasing numbers in, in, in cash bail being set. In particular, it became to it came to a point that it began to attract attention that it was a statement from elected judges to make a statement about how heinous a particular crime was. And not only was it a tool of the judges, it was also a tool of prosecutors to seek those bonds. And it's something that started very slowly 
and it grew and it grew and it grew. And particularly, we saw it grow in the 80s and 90s during the drug wars. And because of the war on drugs and those increasing statements of this is how serious we believe this crime is, we began to see numbers reaching up into the millions even that we still see today from time to time when particularly heinous crimes are in the newspapers. This was never the intention in the first place. And as is typically the case when we talk about constitutional crises, it doesn't usually happen overnight. Mm. Usually it is a trail of events that grow and grow and grow. It's the idea of putting a, a frog into a pot of boiling water versus slowly heating up the water with, with the frog in it. Folks, we're the frog and we're starting to starting to bubble here. When we talk about uniformity, though, um, my concern is, is that uh, judges start to lose the discretion that we want them to have. Uh, I know that in the federal courts they had this you know, sentencing reform where they tie the justices' hands and then it, it came out that, well, maybe it's not as restrictive as, as you know, th that we thought. But um, if we're going to make bail uniform across the state, we're going to have to have some objective criteria, right? And I, I saw that uh, the foundation, the um, um, Arnold Foundation Public Safety Assessment Tool, if I'm saying it right. Yes. I, I love that. And Jack, I don't know if you saw this, but it it has, um, I think, nine different criteria that judges should look at to determine whether uh, what the bail should be, whether there should be any bail or not. And it doesn't take into account um, race or gender or education or these those type of things. It's really as objective, I think, as, as it can be. Do you find a lot of courts are looking at that? Uh, is that something that's going on in Ohio now? It is. And as I mentioned earlier, that uh, Cuyahoga County and Mahoning County, uh, it's actually the Youngstown Municipal Court uh, are, are using it. And there's other courts that are using variants of it as well. And, and the one thing to be very clear about is uh, a, a risk assessment tool is never one size fits all. Every community has unique indicators, uh, and it's part of what we do as an organization to work closely with the courtrooms that have chosen to implement this tool and to help them fine tune that, looking at data over time, look at what is the success. And infrequently, we find that there needs to be adjustments to that tool. The one thing that is also very important is to recognize, and this is for, for the general public and for attorneys, for judges to understand, judges more than anyone else, this is not an automation tool. This is not intended to make the decision for the judge. It is meant to be one input of information to assist the judge in being able to make that decision. I looked at uh, Senate Bill 182, which is the new proposal for how bail is to happen, and I saw a number of criteria that were to be considered, and I'm wondering if those came from your organization. Um, not so much from the organization on Senate Bill 182 with sponsors, Senator Rob McCauley and mm -hmm. Senator Steve, Stephen Huffman, uh, the, and also a companion bill in the House that has uh, representatives Brett Hillier from Northeast Ohio and uh, David Leland uh, as, the, as the main sponsors on it. Uh, and they're identical bills. The, uh, the criteria comes from what we have consistently seen. And by we, I don't just mean Arnold Ventures. Uh, I mean, this studies and court decisions that have had to look at what have outcomes looked like in the past. We're seeing these all as, as indicators. Now, you'll note, though, that in that legislation, it is not prescriptive to that the, that the Arnold Ventures risk assessment tool must be used. And, and that, that's intentional. I, you know, we, don't, we want the flexibility of, of courts 
to do what works best for mm-hmm. their community. Uh, but those indicators have been largely universal. And we've, we found that in states like New Jersey that implemented bail reform years ago. We saw in Washington, D.C., which got rid of their cash bail all the way back in the 90s. Uh, you know, we, we've seen significant indicators from, from other jurisdictions that have already been down this road. And we would be foolish to, to not incorporate them here. One of the things this foundation did, um, according to these articles, was it looked at hundreds of cases where bail was set and then looked at the outcomes, and that's where those indicators were derived from, which goes oh. back to what Micah was saying. It's evidence, fact-based, mm. problem-solving, uh, so they're not just making up things hoping it works. It looks like it. Uh, these are the indicators that they can prove through data that already work. I was really impressed with the bill, and as I commented to Gonzo, I thought, this is way too progressive for Ohio. But some of the things that I saw were there had to be a clear and convincing evidence that this person was going to be a public safety risk. There was the presum- uh, there is a presumption that restrictions on the defendant should be non-monetary, and the amount of bail had to be re- had to have some relation to the defendant's income. This was all staggering. I just thought, wow, that's a those are tremendous changes from where we are. They are tremendous, but their roots again go back to the U.S. Constitution. I mean, if we go back again to the Eighth Amendment that says that excessive bail shall not be said. You know, the the knee-jerk reaction mm-hmm. for courts, because it's easy, is to use a bond schedule. And the problem with the bond schedule is, one, just because charges are the same does not mean the circumstances between two cases are the same. And we, we all know this. Sure. But even more importantly, the circumstances that may vary the greatest are for the defendant. I mean, I think of myself. You know, let's let's say that, uh, that if I were, as the same individual, 10 years apart, to have been charged, let's say, with a DUI and had, let's say, a $5,000 bail set, really a, a quite reasonable bail to have set for a DUI, especially if anyone else was injured in it. You know, To have $5,000 set, for me today, I could come up with $5,000 relatively quickly mm-hmm. and be able to post that and show up for my court date. And then when I show up, get most of that back minus fees, right? Now, I can tell you right now that 12 years ago, as a legislative aide making $29,500 a year, I can tell you right now that no way on earth could I have come up, even with 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 five thousand dollars, I would have had to have beg and borrow and steal the five hundred in Which, order to go through a bonds agent. And stealing would have resulted in another charge. <laughs> Only if you get caught, sir. Only if you get caught. <laughs> and so to be able to to post that in five hundred dollars, I mean, at that point, I mean, that's what I was as I was sharing an apartment with other people. That was my rent for a month, mm-hmm. and I was getting by on ramen noodles and Stouffer's lasagnas. So. That kind of hardship years ago uh, would have been you know, very, very difficult to overcome. I most likely would have sat waiting for my trial. And today, I'm no better of a person today than I was then. I'm no more or less responsible than I was then. But it would have had an impact. And to go to, to John's statement earlier about, uh, about the determination around, uh, around uh, when, when the sentencing includes time served, well, me as the same individual today for a DUI, you know, barring you didn't kill anybody, you're not going to do jail time over it. But same individual, 10, 12 years apart, 
I would have gotten a time served sentence versus fines, remedial education, and maybe community service today. Are there um, organizations that help people post uh, bail? Um, you know, I know that uh, with the um, protests that were going on, um, you know, over the last few years, I know there were some uh, politicians that got together to, to help people that were arrested in those post bail. But do you know of any organization that that's the function? There are dozens and dozens of them all over the country. Uh, one of the most prominent and a great partner in working on pretrial issues is the Bail Project, which has offices both down in Cincinnati and up in Cleveland. Uh, they do absolutely phenomenal work. Uh, honestly, though, and they're referred to broadly as charitable bond organizations. Uh, they work off of donations. They they will help post bond for, for defendants. And uh, when that defendant shows for court and the and they get the bond back, they recycle the, the money and they put it in towards the next defendant. Um, unfortunately, they're under attack right now by uh, by both bond agencies and the insurance companies that that back those those bond agencies, uh, we just saw this in Texas that applied regulation to the uh, charitable bond organizations, requiring them to know more about the background of the individual than what an existing bond agency or what honestly even the magistrates and the justice of the peace know about the defendants. Uh, and so, yes, there are great organizations out there, uh, and, and some of them are as large as the Bail Project, and there's many that are much smaller. Sometimes they're church-run, um, but unfortunately, they're under attack today, and it's an unfortunate situation. I saw something that was interesting. It was a couple of professors from the University of Virginia Law School who were criticizing the current bail system because of the cost of incarceration. So they had come up with the theory of, why don't we have the government pay the bond to the pay the cost of the bond to the bondsman? Now it doesn't address a lot of the things that you're talking about, but the point was keeping people out of jail, if you want to use this crazy system, is still going to be less expensive. I just thought it was intriguing. Well, the underlying assumption of something like that is that uh, bond agencies provide a valuable service to the state. And I think that this is an assumption that hasn't been challenged in a long time. Mm -hmm. And it's probably time for us. I mean, we're talking about an industry whose spokesman is Dog the Bounty Hunter. We might want to look <laughs> a little bit more closely. And with with that said, I you know, something that a lot of folks realize, even don't realize even in the advocacy world, I only recently learned about it, and it was a result of uh, something that we learned from a prosecutor in Southwest Ohio, is that it is not uncommon for a, uh, for a bond agency to fail to have their client appear before the court and to have the judge waive the bond to the bond agency. So the bond agency doesn't perform the service that they're meant to provide in the first place, and two, the sole incentive that exists for them to do so is removed. And so the result is the defendant doesn't show, justice is not served, and the bond agency has no incentive to provide that service in the future. Another little um, nugget here is that oftentimes the bond agency actually doesn't put up any money. They're just good for it. But there's no money that exchanges you know, from the bond agency to the court. It's a incredibly lucrative business. And um, you know, I agree it probably needs to be looked at. Let's go back to the legislative process, which which you know very well. My understanding is that both of these bills um, were referred to committee and they had um, the first um, hearing. 
which, as I recall, is merely just the, the sponsor talking to the committees. Is that the way it works? Yep, absolutely. So first hearing is sponsor testimony. Uh, and for some bills, that is a very ceremonial formality. Uh, and and you'll hear the sponsors, uh, particularly when they're challenged with questions from the committee, uh, say, we'll have experts be able to testify on this later. And I have to say, our bill sponsors in, in both the House and Senate are phenomenal. Uh, they, they are experts on this. And I look particularly to uh, both Hillier and Leland, uh, who both as attorneys understand this issue inside out, and also Senator Rob McCauley, uh, who's actually in leadership in the Senate and who understands these issues inside and out, have actually tried uh, cases uh, as, as defense attorneys, have defended clients who were dealing with these very issues. They know it inside out. And so it was far more than a formality for them because they were able to deal with in-depth in uh, questions. Meanwhile, then in the Senate, uh, Chairman Nathan Manning went ahead and held a second hearing, uh, which is the is the proponent testimony. So the advocates came in. We had everything from uh, from constitutional attorneys talking about the issues, uh, impacted individuals telling their stories. And, and for, for those who are uh, not aware, all testimony is actually available online. You can watch the video or you can read uh, testimony. And if you go to ohiochannel.org, uh, you, can, you can find, you can search keywords. And if you search for Senate Bill 182, you'll be able to find it. Uh, but uh, these stories are heart-wrenching mm. of, of people who have been impacted by this current system. And in some cases, people who were innocent of the crime that they were even charged mm. with, who did serious time in jail, just waiting for their day in court. Did you testify? Is that part of your role? I, I did. I did. I, I, I don't testify in all states where, where we work, but uh, Ohio's home for me. So mm -hmm. I, I was pleased to be able to testify in that committee. One of the uh, things that I would think you would hear from the proponents, because Republicans, to sway them on some of these issues, want to think about the budget and the cost. I read a statistic that just keeping somebody in jail while they're waiting, even even their arraignment, let alone uh, bail, is something like $65 a day just for that bed. Yeah. And that adds up. And I imagine people were talking to it be, about that because there are a ton of co-sponsors on these bills, right? And yep. it's bipartisan. More than 50. Yeah. Yes. So it's resonating. All of these arguments, the constitutionality and the cost seems to be resonating. But go back to there's going to be opponent testimony, I assume. Who's against this? Um, I read, obviously, the Bail Bonds Association and them, but I, I thought some of the prosecutors are objecting to it. Why would that uh, for, happen? You know, for prosecutors, and, uh, and, and it's very easy to stereotype prosecutors, uh, and, and that is often probably unjustified. Uh, however, at the end of the day, when we look at prosecutors, uh, they don't have an easy job. And for a prosecutor that is perceived to be weak on crime, that's a that's a fast track to to not keeping that job, uh, and so prosecutors' incentive is to at all times appear as the iron fist when we talk about crime, and so uh, to open an avenue that would lend itself to that appearance of so-called weakness, uh, it's not surprising that prosecutors would, would be alarmed by that. Now, fortunately, there are some great prosecutors who, uh, at least behind the scenes, are, have been able to provide some useful information and some direction on how we can make the, the legislation more functional. Uh, and uh, you know, we, we appreciate that, even if they're not able to be outspoken about it. On the Beyond that, though, there are some judges, uh, particularly, uh, let's face it, 
judges tend to fall in in a demographic uh, that are very much used to how things were done, if we're being honest, in the 80s and 90s. And to to move away from, well, this is how we've always done it, is also challenging. But let's also be clear, there's a number of great judges that are also strongly advocating for not just accepting what the Supreme Court adopted in rule changes around bail uh, just in the past couple years, but to take it a step further and codify it and, and even go beyond what the rules did. And among those includes our own Chief Justice, Marina Connor, who has been a stout champion for making sure that before she uh, retires from the Supreme Court that we address this issue. She's doing uh, some wonderful things with these task force on these issues, and I, I did read the recommendations, but going to your point, that task force was made up by a number of judges, but also prosecutors. I noticed uh, some of the names of uh, I recognized across the state, So, uh, and it, it actually um, uh, resulted in a reform, like you said, to the criminal um, uh, rules. But back to our legislation, it seems like a long process. Uh, long process, and uh, we're coming up on elections, and then the end of the year. What uh, What's your best guess? Does it get passed this year? Does it make it out? You know, we have in Ohio uh, one of the most amazing bipartisan coalitions when it comes to criminal justice issues that uh, that I've seen anywhere in the country, and. Uh, not just and willing to put their names behind we support certain issues, but to actually proactively work together. I mean, in, in Ohio, working on this issue alone, and I'm going to leave names out here, but we have the Buckeye Institute, the the free market think tank that has really uh, made a name for itself talking about criminal justice issues. Americans for Prosperity, uh, again, a, a right of center free market group, the ACLU, the Bail Project. Uh, the the work that has gone in from this diverse coalition into educating, working uh, their constituencies, helping the general public understand, I can't uh, look in a crystal ball and say this will be done, but I will say that legislators are being responsive, uh, and it's hard to look at a coalition like this and the constituencies that are coming to play in this and to deny them altogether. Uh, I'm optimistic that we will see uh, something significant pass within within uh, this General Assembly. Well, I hope so. I, I want to go back to that notion of data. Are there stats that, sh well, there must be. I'm interested in how many people, low-level crimes that post bond actually show up. It's got to be a tremendously high percentage, I would think. It is. It is. The vast majority of defendants show. Uh, and, and what uh, research has shown is that out of those who don't show, uh, typically the majority of those, and again, bear in mind, that's a severe minority, out of those who don't show, typically there's extenuating circumstances that were somehow involved with it. Well, my point is it would seem to me that passing the bill, and I've read part of it, it seems to make sense, it's really a low-risk proposition overall, isn't it? It is, particularly in that it leaves so many different options still in the judge's hands about what they're able to do, including uh, a, an instrument that is in this that some other reforms in other states have lacked, uh, is if someone commits a another crime while they are out on bail, uh, the judge has the instrument to be able to preventatively detain, to revisit the conditions of release. There are options for the judge. Uh, and, and at the end of the day, knowing that judges are the closest to the circumstances in the jurisdiction, we want to make sure that they maintain those tools. And this legislation does that with great balance. If you've ever watched arraignment court, 
in Franklin County, there are, I don't know, 100 people waiting to be arraigned. And to me, these judges are just making an educated guess. And they can use all the data, right, and all the talking points and, and figure this out. But if one person goes out and commits another crime, it makes the news. But that doesn't mean the system or the process is flawed. It just means that we're humans and we can't, as you said, Micah, predict the future of what's going to happen. So um, I like what I see going on here. Uh, how can people get involved in this? Yeah, I'd say that the first thing that folks can do uh, is uh, to to visit our website, arnoldventures.org. Uh, and there's contact options that are there. Reach out to us if, if you want to learn more. Uh, and also, you know, bearing in mind, we are a national organization, but we are plugged in with grassroots organizations in all the states that we're working in. And so here in Ohio, uh, we're more than happy to connect people with the ACLU and with Americans for Prosperity, uh, whatever outlet may be best for them, uh, because there are opportunities to be directly and personally involved. Uh, and one of the most critical things is stories, uh, it, because Stories are powerful uh, because for people who have never encountered the justice system, it is a very abstract idea to them. And it, we have discovered even legislators who are familiar with the court system don't understand how like cash bail works. And we've had a legislator recently, an attorney who had never practiced criminal law, uh, they thought that when a defendant uses a bond agency to post bail, that they get their money back afterwards, which isn't the case. <laughs> we have education to do. And so for people who want to be involved, if they have a personal story or they know someone with a story, number one is to be sharing that story. And there are multiple outlets for that. I would say start by reaching out to us and we can help get people connected. I got one last question. Let's talk about, well, I'm gonna ask, has there been an analysis of the economic impact on those people who get jailed because they can't afford bond and then lose their job, et cetera. That's got to be a staggering number. Certainly. And it, it is difficult, and I point back to where we started this conversation around data and the and the mm -hmm. gaps. There's, there's nothing that is conclusive that can point to an average number or anything. But what we do know is that it is significant, especially in more urban environments and with low-income populations. Uh, and that cost goes both ways. It goes the immediate impact to the defendant, and there's also the cost to the state and the counties. You know, ACLU, I commissioned a study uh, in, in the last couple of years that had an economist look at what's the impact to the state. And if we were to eliminate nonviolent defendants from, from incarceration, the state would stand to save from, from the incarceration alone somewhere in the vicinity of about $160 million a year. You know, and that's that's no small amount. Now, I do I do uh, point out I don't think that necessarily that money should be put back in GRF or even given back to taxpayers. It should probably be rerouted towards more robust pretrial services so that we can have a more efficient court system altogether because there's issues there. Plenty of issues there. I was um, in court again waiting for my little civil case when, a, when the judge was asking a, a defendant why he had not showed up for court the month before. And he was there in an orange jumpsuit, so I knew they brought him from jail this time. Basically, he said, you know what, judge? I lost my job. I didn't have a car. And I was drinking heavily. And uh, that goes to uh, pretrial services to get people there, to remind them remote access. There's so many opportunities now because it, it, he seems sincere because he was basically saying, look, 
this is me and I'm sorry, but I did like I did really want to be there. <laughs> so the judge actually released him and said, okay, uh, when we see you next month, better you better be here. So um, sounds like a good judge. Yeah, he, he is a good judge. Um, Micah, this uh, Arnold Ventures, from everything I've been reading, is an incredible uh, philanthropic organization, and I'm uh, so happy to see that you're a part of that and you're working with them and doing this good work. Thanks for sharing with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's always great to know that there are folks who are in the profession that care about the profession, care about the system that is built, uh, built around it, and that ultimately want to see good changes. Mike, it was a great conversation. Uh, thanks for me as well for joining us. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of Lawyer Up concerning some legal or social justice issue. Our thanks to WOSU for allowing us to record here and to our sound engineer, Eric French. So until then, remember to lawyer up. So long. <laughs>